Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who sent your only Son to take our flesh and share our misery, to take up a cross and, and assume our iniquity, to rise to eternal life and cement for us a new relationship with our Creator. We ask this morning that you open our hearts and our minds to the Easter good news and that even in our ongoing misery, you let us never forget that the last words have already been spoken for us. It is finished. Now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. We have a tradition at our house for, for Lent. We put a cross on the front door. Actually, a few years ago, we swapped out the old door that was in the house when we, when we bought it with two new doors, double doors that open inward. And so now there are two crosses. <laughs> but Stacy bought bolts of cloth, colored cloth, and so <clears throat> on... On Ash Wednesday night after dark, we hang the crosses with purple hangings on them on the front door, and they stay up all the way through Lent. And then on Maundy Thursday night after dark, the hangings are changed to black, and they stay black until Easter Eve night when they are hung up with white, and they stay white on the front door through the Feast of the Pentecost. They don't then turn to green. We put them away, and we we you know we wait till next year at Lent. Uh, this year, however, I um, messed up. I was it was about 6:15, and I was halfway downtown to vest up for the seven o'clock Easter service, and suddenly realized that I had forgotten to change the hangings to white. So here it was, Easter Sunday morning, and uh, our front door was adorned with two crosses with black drapery. But I thought about it later, and it, 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 there actually I sort of backwards stumbled into a little bit of the narrative reality. When the women first went to the tomb on Easter Sunday, they didn't know they were going to find it empty. They were still debating who was going to help them roll the stone away. And the men weren't even bold enough to go to the tomb. They were still hiding out in the in their dark rooms, hoping that the Jewish authorities wouldn't decide to come for them next. So, in a way, the fact that I didn't change the hangings until I got home after the 7 a.m. Easter service was a little bit significant. I'm not saying I'm going to do that next year, because the truth is I just, you know, I just messed up. But um, if we, as we read this passage, which is... Um, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Steve will read it for us. Uh, think about that, that, what must have been in the minds of the actors on the, at the dawn of that first Easter morning as they didn't know, as they gradually learned what the truth was and realized what it meant. Steve, would you read for us? Sure. Uh, John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, 
while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, and one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet, not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Thank you. If you read all four of the Gospels' accounts of the Easter morning story, you'll see that each of the writers focuses on something different. Matthew devotes most of his ink to the uh, attempts by the Jewish authorities to suppress the evidence, to bribe the, the guards uh, to give false testimony about what happened there at the tomb so that nobody would, would realize the reality of the, uh, of the resurrection. Uh, Luke mentions this um, Easter morning in the garden, but he devotes a lot more ink to the Emmaus walk, the two apostles on the road to Emmaus when Jesus appeared with them. Uh, Mark gives almost a perfect cliff note summary of all of the stories. He says that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene and then to two travelers in the country and then later to the 11 who were gathered around the table where he upbraided them for their unbelief. Just like a perfect, quick summary of what happened on that first Easter day. But we see that with all of their different focuses, all of the stories tell in a way that, that, that is very consistent what happened on that first Easter Sunday. But there was one exception to that, and that is that all of the other 
gospel accounts make it clear that Mary Magdalene was not the only one of the women who went to the tomb. According to uh, Matthew, as we heard last week, that was the, the gospel reading for Easter Sunday this year, it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. According to Mark, it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. According to Luke, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. Now that's broadly consistent because it doesn't, it, it doesn't exclude anybody. Uh, Mary, mother of James, is we understand the mother of James the lesser, that is the, the other James who was an apostle who we don't know about all as much as, as James who is the brother of John. Um, Joanna uh, is elsewhere identified as the wife of the steward to King Herod. We know that she was one of the women who accompanied uh, Jesus during his, um, during his ministry. Uh, Salome is sometimes referred to as Mary Salome, and the other Mary may have been Mary the mother of, uh, of James the Lesser, or it may have been Mary Salome. Uh, Salome is otherwise identified as the wife of Zebedee. And we, of course, know that Zebedee was the father of James and John. So Salome was the mother of John the Gospel writer who writes this story. So I don't think that John was ignorant about the women who went to the tomb. I mean, after all, his, his mom was one of them. He, he surely knew that. So John surely had a reason not to mention the other women. And I think that that's really what I want to focus on here because I believe that John had a point. As we know, John's was the last gospel written. It's the gospel that's thematic. The other three gospels written much earlier in time, synoptic through one eye in the Greek word, uh, those were more narrative. And John, writing as much as maybe 70 years after the events, with lots of time to think about the theology, was, was, was teaching broader themes through these stories. And I think that this is one of those. I think that like a good playwright, like a good narrator, like a good storyteller, John has taken off of the stage any supporting actors, and he's reduced it down to three people. He's reduced it to Simon Peter, to the other apostle Jesus loved, which was the, which was the way John referred to himself in all of his in, in in his gospel. So Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene. And I believe that he's doing that because he wants to illustrate something really important about the Easter story that perhaps had not been the emphasis of any of the other three gospel writers. Let's look at what each of these, um, each of these actors did and what it tells us about them. Simon Peter, he runs to the tomb. Uh, John also runs to the tomb. A nice little detail is that John outruns Simon Peter 
A lot of people have taken that as an indication that John was a very young man. Simon Peter was a good bit older. I can imagine that Simon was probably a little bit out of shape. Um, he gets to the tomb like I would, you know, hopelessly out of breath, his quads on fire. Um, John has already beaten him there like Steve. You know, Steve wouldn't have been out of breath and his quads wouldn't have been on fire. Mine would have been. That's how Peter gets to the tomb. John gets to the tomb first, being younger and more swift and in better shape. But, you know, John's kind of an intellectual. John doesn't run right on into the empty tomb. Um, he, he stops in the garden, and he's studying the fact that the stone has been rolled away, and the tomb is, you know, you can see into the tomb. But he's too intellectual yet to just go bursting in. Peter... You know, the guy who comes across in the Gospels like a bull in a china shop sometimes. He's the one who runs right on in. John, the intellectual, the somewhat more pensive one, follows Peter inside. And what does he see? They both see that the linen wrappings that the body had been wrapped in were unwrapped, unwound, and the, the veil that had been placed over the face of the body had been folded neatly and was in another spot. Peter was the first one to see it. John was the first one to understand it. John the deep thinker. That's when, it, it is the, as the gospel writes, at that time they had not yet understood, they did not yet know the scripture about what was to happen to Jesus. John was the first one to sort of synthesize all of that, and you can almost imagine the light bulb going on over his head. So Peter and John walk back to wherever they had come from, and they're excitedly discussing this. But poor Mary Magdalene, they leave her. They don't tell her anything, you know. Mary Magdalene's the first one to the tomb. It's still dark when she, when she leaves her house. She comes to the tomb. She finds it empty. She runs to tell the news. She obviously follows them back. And she's there in the garden. And they walk back out. They don't tell her anything about what they've seen. And they leave her in the garden weeping. Weeping in grief. So... Mary Magdalene has even less reason than Peter and John to understand what's happened. You know, she was, she was um, not one of the inner circle. She didn't, she didn't get the secret stuff that Jesus told his, his apostles about what would happen. Uh, so she's left grieving, and yet she's the one the first one to see Jesus. And there's no doubt about that from the scriptures. Again, in Mark, Mark makes clear Mary Magdalene was the first one to see the risen Lord. So John and Mark both make it clear it's Mary Magdalene that he appears to first. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? I mean, we know a lot about Peter and John, both from the Gospels and from the first parts of um, the book of Acts and from the epistles that they each wrote um, later in the New Testament. But what we know about Mary or what we thought we knew was mostly wrong. You probably all heard that she was thought from, the, from early years in the church to have been a prostitute. There's zero evidence of that in the scripture. And I believe that the Roman Catholic Church sometime in the 
19th century officially withdrew that that position that she was a prostitute. It no longer teaches that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Um, according to some sources, Mary Magdalene was thought to be the woman who was who was caught in adultery. Remember the the story in John, let he who is sinless cast the first stone. Um, Mel Gibson's movie implies that. It doesn't say it in so many words, but it implies that she was that woman. But again, there's no scriptural basis. There's no scriptural support for that. Um, we've we've heard that she could have been the wife of Jesus. That you know the Dan Brown uh, 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 body of work. But there's even less support for that in the scriptures. What we have, what we know about Mary Magdalene, we get out of the scriptures. We know that from her name. Magdalene. She almost certainly was from the town of Magdala, which was a prosperous little village on the on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a very nice place to come from. We know that she may well have, well, we think that she may well have come from some money. Uh, listen to the way she's introduced in the, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8. Shortly afterwards, he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as were some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. So Mary Magdalene was one of the um, early uh, supporters with money of Christ's three-year ministry. Um, so she may have come from money. Uh, the seven demons that is referred to here is also referred to in the last chapter of Mark as, um, as something that, that, that Jesus had done for Mary Magdalene. We don't know what that was. It perhaps was because of the implied parallel to the seven deadly sins. It perhaps was the basis for people thinking that she might have been a prostitute, but the seven deadly sins go all over the map, and there's no reason to believe that prostitution is any more likely to be associated with the seven deadly sins than any other, you know, gluttony or, or envy or any of the others. Well, that's right. Uh, I mean, Luke makes clear that, these, that, that among these women, they have been cured of infirmities and of evil spirits. And so probably the the best conclusion of the seven demons is that Mary Magdalene suffered from some sort of physical or mental illness that Jesus had cured. Um, we know from the scriptures that she was at the cross. We know from the scriptures that she was at the tomb. So most of what we know about Mary Magdalene, we know from the things that she did, and the things that she did are most clearly shown during the, the passion story. And they are things that demonstrate the greatest devotion, that she was devoted to Jesus. When, the, when almost all of the other apostles were scattered and, and quaking fear on Good Friday, she was there with, with uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. They're the only ones who had the courage to be there at the foot of the cross. 
And she was the one who went to the tomb with the other women and who was the first to see him on Easter. Ironically, the only time we ever hear words come out of Mary's mouth or in this, Mary Magdalene's mouth, or in this passage that Steve just wrote. I can't find any other reference anywhere in the Gospels where she actually speaks, only here. So most of what we know from Mary is what she does. And what she does is show great love and devotion to Jesus. Now here's my theory about John's Gospel point in telling this story the way he told it. Jesus chose to reveal himself first to Mary Magdalene. As a side note, notice that she didn't recognize him. She presumed him. She assumed him. She deduced that he was the gardener. I can't find any, any real theological parallel to the gardener. She just thought that he was somebody other than, than who he was until he <clears throat> spoke to her in the, in the first person by her name. And she responded with a really the Aramaic name Rabboni. But remember that the, the, the Hebrew word for teacher was rabbi. And we met in the book of Acts, we met Gamaliel, the greatest of the rabbis, who was called Rabbon, which was like to say great teacher, not just teacher, but great teacher. I can imagine Rabboni or Rabboni is almost like Mary Magdalene saying, great beloved teacher when she suddenly recognizes him. Um, she thinks he's the gardener. He speaks to her individually and she recognizes him as her Lord. But why do you suppose that Jesus chose to reveal himself first to Mary Magdalene? He could have chosen John and Peter when they were inside the tomb. He could have chosen John or Peter when they were walking back from the tomb to wherever, you know, the house or houses where they had come from. He chose to appear first to Mary Magdalene. Well, if my theory about why is true, if I'm right, then this is great news for me and for you and for everybody that we know. You see, not everybody can be a... Um, a great leader of the church. Not all of us have the kind of charisma to make us, uh, to qualify us like Simon Peter or like Martin Luther or like Pope John Paul to be great titanic leaders of the church. Not all of us have the kind of uh, theological or spiritual insight to be brilliant theologians the way... Um, the way Thomas Cranmer was, or Augustine of Hippo, or St. John, or C.S. Lewis. Um, those kinds of theologians are very, very rare. But everybody, all of us, can love him the same way that Mary Magdalene loved him. She didn't bring anything to the table other than her devotion. Well, she brought her family money, perhaps, but... The point of, 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 of the gospel story, I think, is not that Mary Magdalene supported the ministry out of her means, but that she was so devoted to him that she would be left weeping in the garden, waiting to see her Lord.
Think about what Easter really means. For 2,000 years, the people of Israel were accustomed to having their only contact with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only contact was through intermediaries. Remember, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple, seated on that mercy seat that was on the lid of the uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year on the, feast, on, on the Day of Atonement. And every other time of the year, God was in that Holy of Holies and everybody else was outside and they were, they were divided by that, that heavy veil. But on Good Friday, the veil was torn in two, top to bottom. There was no longer any division between God and his people. And the devotion of Mary Magdalene was rewarded by being the first to see Jesus, the first to see her Lord in the flesh after the resurrection. They all saw him. They all saw him before. They all saw him in his in his earthly form as one of us. But the first appearance in his risen form was to one who brought nothing other to the table than her devotion. During Lent, Brian, you have a thought? I was just going to say, I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, Peter and John, they're running around and they're excited and they're running back to the house and all this sort of thing. And, uh, but, but Mary is sitting there crying and, and that Jesus would come to her, mm-hmm. I think just shows tremendous tenderness. Right. And, and sensitivity and, and is, is such a personal thing um, that, that he would come to her while she's sitting there alone crying for him. I think the $64,000 word you just used, Brian, was personal. That that John was making a point here about how personal the Easter story is. That what had been a distant relationship is now a personal relationship, a one-on-one. And it doesn't require great gifts like Peter and John had. All it requires is our devotion. That is, Mary Magdalene was waiting for him. She was grieved. She was weeping. She was heartbroken, but she was waiting for him. And he came first to her. And, and even more so, the, the attributes of Jesus, that he is the comforter. That, and, and that is, you know, we, we know that to be true. Frank? Uh, I have a question, uh, John, about whether um, Anglican or Episcopal Church doctrine specifies what happened to Jesus right after he died. You know, when he was on the cross, he told one of the other guys there on the cross, mm-hmm. today you will be in, be in paradise. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell on the third day and rose again from the dead. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere in the New Testament, I don't have any idea where it is, that there's some com- commentary that perhaps while he was in the land of the dead or in hell, whatever he preached mm-hmm. to those people. Mm-hmm. And I think I was in a Bible study class mm-hmm. one time with um, um, John Harper. Well, we discussed that, or where that issue was discussed. About mm-hmm. What did he preach? Was it a, I told you so, or a give him a second chance? I mean, it was that kind of a conversation. So I'm just, my, my curiosity is, is there, a, is there an established opinion or doctrine or whatever you call it 
theology in the Anglican Church. This, this, it kind of everybody agrees this is what happened, or it's still a big mystery. Well, we have we have in the creed that he descended into hell, and we certainly have it in the gospel that he promised to the to the uh, thief that he would be with him that day in paradise, which is um, which is a Persian word. It comes from a paradise comes from a Persian word that was uh, used to describe the uh, the king's garden, the 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 greatest, most beautiful, most comforting garden open only to the king himself, the emperor of Persia. Um, as far as the three days in hell versus the same day in paradise, I think the answer to that is that there is no limitation in space and time to, to Jesus. There certainly is an implication of having, uh, after his death, having raised, remember there's the reference in, I believe it's Matthew, that, that the saints were seen, you know, the, the saints came out, the dead saints, the dead apostle, uh, rather the dead prophets. That, um, so there is, there is that theology. I don't know that the Episcopal Church or the Anglican tradition has ever come down and said, this is the teaching. I don't think that's really very Anglican-like. You know that that's that's a more of a Roman thing to say. The church teaches X, Y, Z. The the Protestant thing to say is well, according to the scriptures, X, Y, Z. What would you, what would you teach your children? I mean, it's, I mean, it may not be that big a deal, but I just it seems to be a conflict. What would you teach your children? Well, I think what we teach our children is that during the time that Jesus was in the grave. He was really and truly dead as, as all human beings really and truly are dead and that when he rose from the dead he established for once and for all eternal life and communion back personal communion with our creator and getting down into the weeds of whether he was in hell preaching to the damned or whether he was in the Persian emperor's lovely garden with the with the thief on his right hand, or or both, yes. I, I think that that's probably something for one to grapple with when he's a little older, he or she is a little older in the faith, not just older in in linear years. I wanted to cite for you for a moment something that I did during Lent. Um, I studied the book of Ecclesiastes. I'd get up about five in the morning and brew some coffee, and I was reading a really, really good um, commentary from the, from the series that is co-edited by John Stott on the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's really tough sledding, I want you to know. Um, as you, those of you who've read any of it, remember that the ongoing theme, the repeated theme, is all is vanity. And it's written from the point of view of King Solomon. Whether he actually wrote it or not is not as important as it postulates King Solomon looking over everything he's accomplished, the wisest man who ever lived, the most accomplished, the height of the, of the Israelite kingdom, and yet in his wisdom seeing that all human striving is worthless totally, completely, 
utterly worthless. And he doesn't even postulate the possibility of a life after death. So what's the point? It's, it, it's the purest example, I think, in Scripture of the human condition of existential despair that one could ask for. And yet at the end of the book, he comes around to saying that the purpose of us humans is to serve God and follow his commandments, which I suppose without Christ is about as good as it gets. Well, I think Mary Magdalene knew a lot about existential despair, the kind of, uh, the kind of hopelessness that come, that, that's on display in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, perhaps she had come to her own kind of uh, prodigal son moment where she realized that, that her money and her, her good name growing up in the, in the Galilean equivalent of the tiny kingdom didn't mean anything. And the only place that she found any, any hope, any rescue was in Jesus of Nazareth. And so she followed him and she became devoted to him. The other way of uh, interpreting the vanity thing, because people might think, you know, it's vanity in the way that you think of vanity, is it's all meaningless. Meaningless, yes. That's what's yes. in there. Well, vanity that. comes from the King James Bible. Other translations do say all is meaningless. And that puts you in the right perspective because when things start to be a problem or a non-problem, whatever it can be, it's meaningless because there's something better and greater. And it's just stop focusing this way because it's just meaningless. Think for a second about what... It sounds like a very depressing book, but it's not. Well, it's not in the sense that when you read it and you realize that it describes our futility without a savior. It sets up the existential question that only Jesus can answer. And that leads to my next point. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Now that sounds pretty exclusionary, doesn't it? Our modern ears don't like hearing that. It sounds... It offends our sense of, of, of equity. Uh, the presiding bishop has suggested that it puts God in a very small box. Well, my response to the presiding bishop always was, well, that's the box that he chose to get into. And the, the, the potter has every right to reject the clay, and I'm the clay, and who am I to tell the potter that he's got to be in a larger box than he's decided to put himself into? So... If Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me, it's not my place to tell him, oh, but, 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 but that's just too limiting. Well, what if, on the other hand, as Andrew Pearson, Dean Pearson's sermon on Easter Sunday suggested, what if instead no one comes to the Father but by me is a promise, is a lifeline? What if instead what Jesus was telling his apostles was, you can't come to the Father on your own merit. The law can't bring you to the Father. Krishna consciousness can't bring you to the Father, nor can the seven pillars of Islam, nor can achieving Buddhist nirvana. But I can. You can't, but I can. So get on my shoulders and let me carry you there. 
you can come to the Father by me. No one comes to the Father but by me because no one can do it because I've done it for you. I think that's what Mary Magdalene saw in Jesus as the way to redeem whatever those seven demons had, had done to make a shambles of her life. And so Mary Magdalene... John, when you uh, talk about that, that uh, it reminds me a little of Tim Keller who said... We are both the most exclusive and inclusive of all of the faiths of people because it includes everybody. God died for everyone. But then it becomes exclusive whether or not you want to exclude that and come in. And it's only those that come in that accept the inclusiveness, inclusivity of every, you know, he meant it that way, but it, you see what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. Not for our, he is the very, he is the very propitiation of our sins. He is the perfect offering for our sins. And, so and not for ours only. What's the rest of it? And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And that is, that is the great story of Easter. And that is why I think Jesus came first to Mary Magdalene. He came first to, in a in a sort of a roundabout way to the least of these, not to the great theologian and not to the great charismatic church leader, their time would come. But to the woman who was weeping in the garden in her grief, who had nothing else to hold on to but her devotion for her Lord. I've always thought that, I'm sorry Susan had to leave because she and I have had this conversation about dogs uh, I've always thought that God put dogs on this earth to teach us something about the way our relationship should be with him. That if we, if we can look at him the way our dogs look at us, if, he can, if we can be perfectly content in his presence and in his comfort and in his fellowship as our dogs are with us, then we can understand something about the relationship that he wants us to have. I think that that's the same point as we have here. If we can love him, if we can seek him with as pure a love and devotion as Mary Magdalene showed, it's, it doesn't matter that we're not charismatic leaders of the church or brilliant theologians. It matters only that we love him and we see him as the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one is capable. Mary Magdalene knew that. And there was Jesus to meet her in his resurrected state on that first Easter Sunday. So that is the first story of the post-resurrection Easter stories. And we'll have some more. Was she the Mary or was it another Mary that was washing, uh, putting the expensive oil on his feet? We praise the well, they're actually, I, I should have made this point earlier, but that was one of the things that early on the church taught that Mary Magdalene, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and the woman who anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair were all the same Mary. I think the term was the unitary Mary. They don't believe that anymore. I, don't th I, I certainly think it's possible that the woman who anointed his feet was Mary, sister... Uh, yes, of Mary of Bethany. 
And I certainly think it's possible that um, that Mary Magdalene um, was the woman who anointed his. But I don't think it's possible that Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany were the same person because they are so distinctly identified yeah. in the Gospels. But but it's very possible that Mary Magdalene was that woman who anointed. She's not identified. That would also lead to her being the prostitute because when she was doing that, how did you know the people at the table talked about how could you let somebody like that? Do you think there's any room that um, that Jesus spoke to a woman to uh, equalize the position of the, in that culture? Women were much below men. Well, your your point to make sure that I get it is that he appeared to Mary Magdalene because women did not have the status of men and in such a way kind of spoke a gospel reality. I think that is very possible. I think we could draw it, we could cast the net wider than that. Remember that none of the inner circle were women. But Mary Magdalene was one of those women in the outer circle who supported the ministry and who followed along with the women with the ministry. So she would have been maybe in the group that was two or three circles outside that that twelve. We could say that we could we could make it a thing about sex or gender roles or something and say that Jesus was was point was pointing out something about the broader ministry to the least of these, we could make it a point not about gender roles so much as that Jesus was now, now that his it's finished, now that his ministry is done and his purpose is achieved, all have the equal access to him that before only the twelve had, and really only the inner circle, the three out of the twelve had. Well, also, is it related to the Jewish tradition? You know, it, it was only, and it just showed the more universality, I think, of the message. Is there anything that you know of that talks about why Jesus tells Mary Magdalene not to cling to him? Um, why? I, I think I know the answer to that. Um, that has been cited by some of the revisionist scholars to imply that they were married. <laughs> it really has been pointed to by the by the Dan Brown types as evidence that they were physically married on earth. Don't hug me. I think what Jesus was saying was, my time after the resurrection is short. The time is, it's important to go and tell the story, to tell everybody that I have risen. So... Don't spend your time with me hogging me to yourself. Don't cling to me to the exclusion of everybody else. But instead, go and tell the news. Go and tell the story. That's what I think it means. I certainly don't think it's 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 any evidence that they had. I just think it's almost like don't touch me, but it's not. It's the word is cling. It's not touch. Do not cling to me. That's right. And that's a that is I'm understanding a pretty accurate. Translation of the Greek. He also tells Thomas to touch him. Yes. 
So it's not, it, it's I not think a that's touch. A, it's not a touch. I think I think you're right. There's a, a different word used there. It's, it's a don't use me exclusively for your own personal comfort, but go tell the whole world that I've returned, that I'm risen. Well, thank you all for coming. See you not next week, but the week after.